So yeah, Genesis chapter 46, and just really continuing on focusing on that life of Joseph. And we're going to be wrapping up this book here in, uh, in a few weeks here, if not by um, the next meeting that we have. If we get through the amount of chapters I was planning to get through tonight, we'll see. We might just kind of plow through some of these. But as the story of Joseph has really kind of reached a climax right now, with him revealing himself to his brothers and just that great kind of scene that we saw of them just weeping and rejoicing over the fact that this brother that was once lost is is now there. And then we see that great scene of the revealing and then the brothers breaking the news to Jacob that Joseph is still alive there in chapter 45. And we move now to see the family of of Jacob now moving down to Egypt to for Jacob now to finally see with his own eyes Joseph his long lost son this has been the very reason now too that God has been moving providentially with Joseph getting him to Egypt because it's essentially to get the family of Jacob there into Egypt and we'll see why that is coming up here but uh, chapter 45 just going back look at verse 7 to 8 and this is very Key here, chapter 45, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So all these great devastations that Joseph has had to encounter, that Jacob has had to deal with, with this years and years of, of sorrow. God's been at work leading Joseph to Egypt for this specific reason, to preserve them, to be posterity, to deliver them with a, a great deliverance. It's been God that's been at work beyond all the scenes. That's why when you read the life of Joseph, it's so exciting just to see the things that we often fail to see happening providentially and sovereignly in our own lives as God is at work and moving in ways that we oftentimes don't even realize. And he's bringing all things into place and lining all things up just as he needs them to be for his purposes and his plans. And the life of Joseph so reveals that so wonderfully. So here we are now. They're making their way to Egypt. Look at chapter 46 with me. So verse one, so Israel or Jacob took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Verse five. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with them, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, I like what we read right there in verse 1, that Jacob took his journey with all that he had. I like that. See, this was no small feat. Jacob is kind of getting up there in age. It wasn't an easy journey to embark on. Jacob 
could have felt, man, this is just not for me any longer. This is, you know, a young man's journey. This isn't for me to be participating in. Perhaps he could have insisted that Joseph come and see him. Joseph, if he says, man of royalty, surely he can make his way here a lot easier and end on first class probably. Why doesn't he come here rather than me have to go to Egypt? It's easy to justify actions that keep us from walking obediently to God. Don't you find that sometimes? Like where God says, okay, here's what I have for you. And we always try to think up reasons and excuses and things that maybe God forgot to think about, you know, before we go. It's like, well, have you considered this, God? You know, God's not sitting there going, oh, yeah, great point. Gee, I didn't really ponder that long enough. God's not ever stuck, you know, on the details, right? All he asks of us when he calls us is to move and to respond by faith. When he directs, when God directs, he's going to equip. He's going to provide. And we need to respond in faith. Jacob, with all that he had, I love that, set out to go a distant to a distant land in his old age. No doubt gathering all that he had, but I think too it's just very interesting that I'm sure it took all that he had to begin this journey here. Now before he got too far, um, we begin to see that I think Jacob was really kind of pondering this and, and questioning it and wondering, is this the right thing to do? He didn't get too far. He stopped at Beersheba. Beersheba's kind of down the, the bottom uh, of Israel there before you begin to hit kind of the, the desert uh, land there, heading into making your way towards Egypt. But he stops here at Beersheba to offer sacrifices. And I think ultimately with those sacrifices, whether it's a thank offering or not, giving thanks to God for all that God's done. Beersheba was a significant place in the history of the patriarchs, always linked to that worship of God. We saw it in Genesis 21 with Abraham. We saw it in Genesis 26 with Isaac. And as eager as Jacob would have been to see Joseph, this did not distract him from taking time to worship the Lord and hear from him. And it's important because Jacob needed to be reminded that God was with him, that God was formed, because Jacob's starting to really question, is this the right thing to do? Because God comes and speaks to Jacob and reaffirms now in this place of Beersheba, this place linked to dedication and worship, God comes and reaffirms uh, his direction and promise in all this. And you know, we so often, I think, can miss out from hearing from God or being directed of God because we don't take time to just wait on him. Or we don't take more time to wait on him. And we fail to sometimes really have that assurance of what God is doing or how he's leading, how he's directing our lives because we haven't taken that time just to wait on him. And Jacob is doing just that. And we see the wonderful byproduct that comes that. Notice what we see there. It says in verse three that God said, Jacob, I, he calls out to him. And Jacob says, here I am. Yep, God, I'm right here. God says, I am God, the God of your father. And what, is, what does he say? I love this. Do not fear do not be afraid. Do not fear to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there. I love that. Do not be afraid. Obviously, Jacob has had some reservations about all this. If the Lord wasn't in this, it could go horribly wrong. That's a good reminder for us. Unless the Lord goes before us and is in it, we shouldn't move ahead with it. But here Jacob is getting that reaffirmation. God says, don't fear. Don't fear, don't swear this, don't, don't be afraid. And then he says, secondly, I will make of you a great nation there. God's purpose 
is for this family of Jacob, the, the nation of Israel, essentially to be in Egypt. And that could have been a very confusing thing to hear because the promises of God for Israel was that they'd be a nation and that nation would be very connected to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. The promise was linked to that. And so I'm sure Jacob's going, why Egypt? We're here, we're in the land that we need to be in. Why should we depart from here? But God's promises were not going to be stopped because of geographical borders. God will continue his plans and his purposes there in Egypt. And then thirdly, God says there that I will go down, in verse four, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. I love that. God's presence was gonna be with them. I think that's so important. Like, like Moses, it says, unless your presence goes with us, uh-uh, I ain't budging, I don't wanna go. And how we need the Lord's presence with us, but we're thankful that God is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now certainly we can step into areas where God doesn't have for us to be in and we're gonna feel a very lack of his direction, but when he's calling us and directing us, he's gonna be with us, he's gonna go before us and he's gonna lead us through. They will all experience the great presence and protection of God there. And he's gonna bring them back to the land of promise again. This would have brought to mind that dream that Jacob had had years earlier Bethel with that ladder reaching up to heaven where it says in Genesis 28, 15, behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I'll not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. It's not a great word from the Lord. I'm not gonna leave you until I've spoken all that I said I would do. And Jacob, when he was leaving to go to Padanaram previously, he was reminded that God's gonna be with you and God's gonna bring you back to the land. So here he's being reminded, yeah, God, you've done this before in my life. I don't have to fear or worry. You're gonna go with me, and you're gonna bring me back again. And lastly, what is Joseph told here? Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Jacob had, has had to live a, a long life of sorrow, having the son that he so loved taken from him. Jacob now for many years has been dealing with just kind of the hurt and the agony, yet in his old age, he's gonna have the joy of not just seeing Joseph again, but having Joseph with him at his side when Jacob is ready to breathe his last. And this is kind of this way of saying, uh, it was a very common custom, still practiced among Jews today, where the eldest son or the closest relative will be with that loved one at at their death and will put their hand over their eyes to you know, close the eyes there. And this is a role that Joseph would carry out with his father Jacob. Jacob would be reminded that in his old age, Joseph is gonna be with him. He's not just gonna see him, but Joseph is gonna be the one that's gonna comfort him in that time. So God confirms his word and he comforts Jacob in these things. Remember, Abraham, had problems when he went down to Egypt before. Isaac was directly told, do not go into Egypt. So Jacob could have very possibly been sitting here, Lord, is this really the right call? Is this really the right thing? We don't have a great history with Egypt. But God is revealing to him, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna protect you. You're gonna be comforted there and I'm gonna bring you back again. So Jacob, I'm sure, was glad to hear from God on these matters. Well, let's continue on in verse eight of chapter 46. Now, these were the names of the children of Israel. 
Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Sheol, the son of a Canaanite woman. Lots of names to read. Um, and these, I, you, we could skip over them, but there's just a lot of great um, you know, anointing that can hit you from these names. There really isn't, but um, maybe there is. I don't know. Um, but uh, so you know what? Yeah, let's just read those names real quickly on your own right now. Okay, there you go. Verses 11 down to verse 24. Uh, we'll pick up in verse, we'll pick up in verse 23. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilam. These were the sons of Bilah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob. Seven persons in all. Verse 26. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. So let me just kind of summarize this for you. I got it right here. So uh, the first, this verse 15, you know, gives us all the details of Leah's children and grandchildren. There's 33 of them. Then Zilpah's children and grandchildren. These were, you know, Jacob's um, wives and they had 16 kids, uh, grandchildren as well. Rachel's children and grandchildren, 14. Uh, Benjamin, he was the, you know, youngest, but he had the most kids. He had 10 kids, Benjamin alone. So well done, Benjamin. Uh, Bill has children and grandchildren were seven. So uh, when you add those all up, that equals 70. And yet what's interesting then is suddenly you hit uh, verse 26 and it says that there's um, 66 and then back in verse 27, it goes back to 70. So, so we got 66 as a count and we've got 70 as a count. A lot of people love to say, oh, see, there's just discrepancies in the Bible and it can't be trusted. So what's happening is the number... Uh, of 66 was not counting Joseph and his two sons who are already in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh. He's not counting Jacob as well. So that's removing four people. You get to 66. Verse 27 then is counting all the family of Jacob. Now what's even more interesting is when you go to Acts chapter 7 verse 14, Stephen is giving the history of Israel and he says that there were 75 of them that went up to Egypt. So suddenly you've got now five more counted. Acts chapter 7 verse 14 says, then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Now that can be accounted by the fact that Stephen is, is using the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the Greek translation of the Old Testament records 75, which was not wrong, but just arrived at in a different way. It was adding most likely the grandsons of Joseph that would be born in, in Egypt. So uh, no discrepancies in the Bible, just counting differently, right? It's like if I were to say, how many people are in this room right now? And I go and count, I count everybody, and I don't count myself. Somebody else counts and they count me. We'd be off on numbers. It's just a different way that we're counting, you see? So that's what's happening here. Different people are being kind of left out uh, at different times. But it's interesting, the number 70, that kind of really stands out. It's not by coincidence 
that the number 70 is seen as this family comes into Egypt here. 70 is an important and very symbolic number to Israel. Moses appointed 70 elders. Jesus himself sent out at a time 70 disciples to go and witness and evangelize. Daniel prophesied that there would be 70 weeks, 70 uh, groups of seven years that would be for God's people in their holy city. So 70 is a very important number to Israel. Sailhammer says this, it can hardly go without notice that the number of nations in Genesis 10 is also 70. Just as the 70 nations represent all the descendants of Adam, so now the 70 sons represent all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the children of Israel. Here, narrative form is a demonstration of the theme in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, which says, When the Most High divide their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So that's interesting, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. So it's in demonstration of the theme there that God apportioned the boundaries of the nations of Genesis 10 according to the number of the children of Israel. Thus the writer has gone to great lengths to portray the new nation of Israel as a new humanity and Abraham as a second Adam. The blessing that is to come through Abraham and his seed is a restoration of the original blessing of Adam, a blessing which was lost in the fall. The picture of God that emerges from these pages is not merely a God who works with his own chosen people for their good alone, but also a God who works with the nations to bring about his plan of salvation and blessing. So very interesting here, 70 now heading to Egypt. And now we see this great reunion as they make their way there and they begin to settle in Egypt. Verse 28 says this, Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen and they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel and he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face because you are still alive. So it's interesting, first of all, verse 28 there is that Judah, right? He seems to be kind of really rising to the surface as kind of that forefront or rising to the forefront as a leader now uh, among the children of Israel. Reuben and Simeon have kind of, you know, lost their way. And, and here's Judah now. And it's interesting because Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. So Judah's really becoming very prominent here. Makes his way to meet Joseph. Now it's been 22 years since Jacob was told of Joseph's death. 22 years he's been sitting there, I'm sure, with just great sorrow and agony. And yet now we see this wonderful reunion come, this embrace between these two where they're just weeping and they're just falling on each other and just so thanks. Just imagine the emotion that they're feeling right now after not seeing the sun. Remember, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. I mean, this was the son that he just loved and adored because he was the firstborn of the wife that he loved, Rachel. And for 22 years, he thought that he's just been gone. And now suddenly, knowing and seeing that he's alive, could you imagine the emotion that you'd be going through in that time? Now, what's great is that Joseph, throughout scripture, and we'll talk about this a lot more uh, next time, uh, as we finish up Genesis, but Joseph is a great type and, and picture of Jesus Christ throughout Scripture. He stands as one of the, the great types of Jesus Christ. These, these kinds of, 
of hints and foreshadowing of the, the work of Jesus. Jacob now has had to consider Joseph's death. And yet now, what is the experience? That Joseph is alive. It's like been resurrected in a sense. Jacob can now die in peace. It's the same for us when we've come to experience the salvation of Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the grave. We had the promise of life and life eternal to where we can say, it doesn't matter now what else might come. I have all that I need in and through Jesus Christ, who has not just saved me, but made me alive and given me the gift of eternal life. We can continue on with great peace now in this world, regardless of what we might face and experience. Amen? Amen. You with me on that? All right. This is great. And Joseph or Jacob is sitting here. I, I can die in peace now. I can go to the grave and be a happy man because I've seen Joseph and he's alive now. It's very much what Simeon experienced at the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter two, verse 29, when he, Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Oh, now, he says, you're letting your servant depart in peace. Now I can go and, and just go with contentment and blessing because now I've seen the fulfillment of the long-awaited-for promise. Now, what a blessing we have when we've accepted Jesus Christ, when we've experienced that salvation and transformation from death into life to where, regardless of what we might encounter, we can continue on in peace and joy, knowing that we have all that we need in and through Jesus. And here's... This salvation now that's ultimately being extended to Jacob's family. Look at verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those in my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation that you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So here, we really begin to see God's good and perfect plan in leading Joseph all the way to Egypt and now eventually being found so miraculously by his brothers, obviously just God orchestrating all these things, leading Joseph there, bringing his brothers to Joseph, now bringing the whole family there. We begin to see God's good and perfect plan in all this. God had a specific place picked out for a specific purpose. The Egyptians, you see, wanted nothing to do with shepherds. They would look at these Israelites and go, oh my goodness, you guys are a bunch of like dirty, you know, unclean people. You're you know, we're much more sophisticated than you. We want nothing to do. And, and the Egyptians just abhorred anybody who was a shepherd. It was an abomination to them. They would want nothing to do with them. And you see, this is God's good and perfect plan. Because we've seen throughout history, as you read through the Old Testament, you begin to see how often Israel was distracted and influenced by ungodly neighbors. And they would fall into idolatry. They'd fall into pagan practices. Israel continuously stepped over that line from the things that God said not to do as they would see what was going on around them. So God says, okay, 
We gotta have a nation that can get a little bit strong here now, get, get a little bit solid footing here and not be picked off early on as they're just growing as a nation. So God says, I got just the place for them. I'm gonna bring them to Egypt. Nobody's gonna wanna be around them. They're not gonna be able to have any influence by those people around them because the Egyptians are gonna completely leave them alone. And you see, there in Goshen now, along the delta of the Nile, they would be able to grow in this protective womb that God was providing for them at the onset of this nation forming and coming together. God provided this protective womb for them just to grow without the influence and distraction of, of things around them to where they can just grow strong in the Lord without being polluted, without being distracted. I think this is just so wonderful. God had this all worked out so beautifully because we know what it was like for Israel when they're around people that weren't serving the Lord and how quick they'd fall prey to those things. I'm sure the Israelites over the years would wonder why they're in Egypt. I'm sure there were times they're going, so what, what is the point to all this? How come, you know, God had Canaan for us. That's not a promise. Now, now we're in Egypt. What's the point? Because they're going to be here for a long time. You wonder how those next generations were kind of thinking this through and wondering what's going on. I'm sure we can at times wonder why God has brought us to places that seem less than ideal. You thought you'd be sitting in the land of milk and honey only to find yourself a stranger in a distant land. Well, God knows what he's doing. And he will sometimes lead you to places that you don't understand exactly why you're there or what's the purpose of it. But simply be sure to walk in obedience and faith, trusting the Lord, and follow him, and, and you'll see that God will fulfill his plans in your life in ways that you never foresaw coming. God will work out his purposes in your life as we just continue to follow him and abide in him and live for him. I'm sure some of these people are thinking, you know, it's been years and years since we've been here. Why don't we just get back to Canaan? Little did they know that God was forming them into a mighty and great nation. So much so that when you turn to Exodus, the Egyptians and Pharaoh are sitting there going, these guys are getting too, number, too numerous for us. They're gonna, they're gonna come against us. They started to fear the Israelites. That's why they began to put them in a hard labor. They began to fear the Israelites. It's exactly what God was seeking to do was to make of them a mighty nation. And it was there in Egypt that this would be accomplished. Let us trust the Lord when we see that things around us maybe don't make sense and we're wondering why, God? Let's trust the Lord because he knows what's best, amen? amen? So chapter 47, now we see this meeting with Pharaoh. Verse one says, then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen 
over my livestock. Now, though Joseph was told to give his family the best of the land, we saw that in chapter 45, verse 18, the Pharaoh already said, give him the best of the land. So Joseph knew what he's done here wasn't sneaky or weird, but he brings five brothers to Pharaoh to kind of now humbly ask this favor. And in so doing, seek to really procure an ongoing favor of Pharaoh. And so they ask, can we, you know, maybe dwell in the land of Goshen? And Pharaoh's like, absolutely, take it, it's yours. And then Pharaoh even seeks to bring on some of, of Joseph's family to be the chief herdsman over his own livestock. So Pharaoh's certainly, you know, very uh, warm to this family Joseph because of what Joseph has meant to Pharaoh. God's just set this up in such a way that there's just such favor given to his people and all because of Joseph and all because of what Joseph had to endure and yet we're seeing the outcome of that now is providing great fruitfulness and favor for them. And then in verse seven, then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Now, a couple of interesting things happening in this, you know, scenario and conversation here with Jacob and Pharaoh. First of all, we see, interestingly, Jacob is the one that comes in and blesses Pharaoh. Now, that's interesting because Hebrews chapter 7 says that the, um, it, it says there that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, positionally, Pharaoh is the greater here, yet Jacob walks in, and what does Jacob feel? Man, I'm the, I'm the greater here, because I think he's thinking, I'm, in, I'm a child of God. I'm following the Lord here. And I think that's just so cool. Jacob is standing before royalty, and the dominant world leader, and yet Jacob understands the exceedingly better position that he's in as a follower of God. We have a far greater honor as children of God than any earthly king or wealthy person or person of prominence in this world. We have a far greater position just simply as being children of God. So Jacob responds to Pharaoh very interestingly and, and wisely when asked, how old he was. Look at what Jacob says. He says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage. Let me just stop right there. I think that's very cool because Jacob knew that his life was simply just that of a pilgrim, a sojourn. And we often see that within the patriarchs. We often see that within God's people throughout scripture that even in the New Testament, how we're called to simply be pilgrims, sojourners, in this world, what does that mean? It means that we're just passing through, that we're not setting down deep roots. We're not building homes in a sense, not that it's wrong to build a home in this world, but the idea, <laughs> I, I need to say that because I just built a home, so. Um, no, but the idea is that we recognize that this world is not our home. We're pilgrims and sojourners that we're just passing through this world. We're awaiting our, our future permanent home. A sojourner was one that traveled through the lands with just a tent that could be set down and taken up just as easy. And, and this is how Jacob identifies himself. The days of the years of my pilgrimage, I've just been kind of passing through because this is not my home. I think that's so important for us to recognize 
our position as pilgrims in this world, that this is not our home. And we're not to be setting down deep roots, finding places of just, well, this is where I'm gonna be and this is where I'm gonna remain, but that we're just continually being led of the Lord and directed of him in all that we do. And then he also says this. He, he says there in, um, in verse nine, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. See, Jacob understood that, first of all, his years have been very few. Now that's true in comparison to Abraham who lived 175 years. It's true in comparison to Isaac who lived 180 years. He says in comparison to, my, to the fathers, you know, my years have been very few. Um, he's just, Jacob is just 130 years. He's like a spring chicken next to, you know, Abraham and Isaac here. But he can also view those years as being few in comparison to eternity. I think all of us can look at our lives and go, man, as James says, our lives are just but a vapor. In light of eternity, our lives here in this world are just a, a blip. We really are just pilgrims passing through because our lives here in light of eternity are just momentarily. And yet, James says, my years have been few and evil in this life. So he's been through great difficulty, tragedy. He's lost, you know, the love of his life in Rachel. He's been thinking now for 22 years that his son that he also dearly loved was taken from him. They, they've been difficult years. But when we look at our lives and recognize they're few in light of eternity. We're not promised an easy journey in this life. Nowhere does it say that you come to Jesus and everything is just going to be, you know, gumdrops and rainbows, right? It's, it's gonna be difficult at times. But yet, we can take comfort in the fact that it's just for a short time. In light of eternity, this is not really difficult. And our lives exist for God ultimately. So as we live for him, we go, whatever I might encounter and face, these become opportunities that God can use for him to be glorified. And he can work through difficulty if we allow him to bring about even greater glory for him. And I love what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a what? A moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Uh, Paul says, you know what? Yeah, light affliction. Paul went through much more than just light affliction, but he says, just for a moment. Our years here are very much few in light of eternity. And so regardless of what we encounter and deal with, you might even be able to say, man, they've been evil years. The years that we can say, but you know what? It's all gonna be made up when we are in glory with Jesus. And we'll be able to say, it has all been worth it all to serve the Lord, to live for him, and to take everything that we've encountered to allow him to work it for his glory and for his praise. And I hope you are encouraged today, whatever you're going through, whatever you're encountering, to have that kind of focus and perspective again as as pilgrims, as sojourners, we're just passing through. 
And God can work through every situation that we've been through, just as he's been working in Jacob's and Joseph's life. Verse 10 of chapter 47, so Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. And then moving on to verse 13, we begin to see here how Joseph now just deals so wisely as an administrator over the whole land with this famine that they are encountering. So we read in verse 13, now there was no bread in, the, in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, give your livestock and I'll give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. Verse 18, when that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. Verse 21. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And verse 26, Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Joseph handled this whole arrangement with great wisdom, one in which all the people were just completely grateful and now forever indebted to Joseph and the administration here of Pharaoh. They were spared from starvation and they were more than happy to give 20% of all their goods as a tax now back. Now the byproduct of Genesis 12 is already beginning to be quite evident because Pharaoh had blessed Israel, allowed them to come into the land, gave them the best part of land in Goshen. Pharaoh has been very favorable to Israel and has blessed them. And what's happening now? Egypt is being greatly blessed. The land is producing. Everybody's selling the land. Joseph's got seed. They're all plant. He's got all the people now planting the seed, farming it, and 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 there's crops that are are coming and. 
all of the land of Egypt is being blessed. Just as God said in Genesis 12, those that bless Israel will be blessed. Those that curse Israel will be cursed. Still true today, I believe. Verse 27, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Now, Israel continued Again, as they're in the land of Goshen, they are, as it says, they grew and they multiplied exceedingly all their possessions as well. They're being blessed. God's with them. God's being favorable to his people as he's led them into Egypt. And then also now Jacob, I mean, he's lived another 17 years in Egypt until he was 147 years. Now, that's very significant and interesting because Joseph was about 17 years old when he was taken away and when Jacob was told that Joseph is no more. And so he said 17 years with Joseph at the front and 22 years now where it's been nothing and now he's got 17 years once more kind of restored to him where these are years that he's been able to be with Joseph and just kind of have that relationship, this restoration and, and time again with Joseph has just been doubled from what he's previously experienced in a sense, or it's been given back to him. Now, Jacob asked a bit of a, a peculiar request of Joseph, at least it's peculiar to us when Jacob says, Joseph, put your hand under my thigh. This was a custom for taking a vow. It, it's interesting because circumcision was that sign of the covenant between God and his people. So. In a sense, in his day when somebody, and Abraham did this with his servant Eliezer, when, he made that, when Eliezer made that promise to Abraham, put your hand under my thigh, because putting it under your thigh was now to put your hand kind of close to that area of circumcision and be recalling the covenant position that they were in with God. And it would signify your desire now to uphold your promise just as God was a promise keeping God. So it's kind of a way of just affirming that sort of covenant and agreement between two people. I'm thankful that we just can shake hands now that we've moved on from that. Uh, don't let anybody say, well, this is my custom. Don't, no, it's just not allowed. Don't do it. Um, and, and so Jacob's desire is this, is to be buried along with his fathers in the land of promise, the land of Canaan, where his fathers were buried in the cave of Machpelah. Uh, and so this is Jacob's desire. I want, my, I want to be placed back there. And in expressing that, what's Jacob essentially saying? He's believing, and it's a show of faith, that this would be the land and the place that they would inherit, just as God has said they would. Jacob's not sitting here saying, well, I guess God's got a new plan for us. We're going to be in Egypt. Jacob's saying, no, don't let my bones remain here in Egypt. Please promise me, covenant with me that that you will bring me back to the land of promise, the very land that God has said we're going to inherit, the land that I believe 
we're going to inherit. And Jacob would be placed back there where his fathers were buried. It's a key symbol of Israel's faith in the promises of God. These bones of the faithful offspring that lie buried now in the promised land. One other chapter of the Bible, Ezekiel 37, with its prophecy of the dry bones, pays specific attention to that symbol also, these bones now coming back to life and the work that God would fulfill, just as Jacob is believing that God will fulfill this promise. Now, it says at the end of chapter 47 that Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Now, um, the same Hebrew consonants there can be read either bed or staff. Staff, that walking stick that they would have, depending on which vowels are supplied. So consonants were used there to write out uh, these Hebrew words. So the traditional Hebrew text reads bed, but the Septuagint quoted in that Hebrews passage reads that it's a staff. So Kidner comments on this, and he says this in his commentary. While both versions have bed at chapter 48, the present occasion tells of Jacob before his last illness and staff may well be the right meaning. It would be an appropriate object to mention as the symbol of his pilgrimage, worthy of the prominence it receives in that New Testament passage. Because it's there in Hebrews 11, that great chapter of faith, that it says that, he, that Jacob, at the end of his life, sat worshiping on the end of his staff. Very interesting. The only, the only hero of faith that was commended as a worshiper. He'd come a long way by the grace of God and would soon go out in a blaze of glory. So here's Jacob now, sitting on the end of a staff and just worshiping, as Hebrews 11 shows us. Well, chapter 48, let's go through this chapter. We'll go through this quickly here. But, and then we'll have chapters 49 and 50 that we'll complete in our next Wednesday as we wrap up Genesis. So it says in chapter 48, now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and he sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they're mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. So Jacob kind of brings up Rachel here and her passing and perhaps he brings up to say, you know, uh, again, she was the love of my life and I was kind of robbed of having more children with her. So he's seen Joseph now, the son that he thought was lost, is now found again and now with two offspring, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Jacob says, these two are going to be mine. They're going to fulfill now just kind of that family and tribes of, of Israel here. And so Jacob reiterates the promise that God had made with his people. Again there, it, when he says in verse four, 
Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you. I'll make you of, a, of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants. The promise revolved around them being a great people, having a land, and having salvation provided for them that through them, the Messiah, Jesus, would come and provide salvation for all. So that's where the promise revolved around. So Jacob now at the kind of the end of his life is reminding them and speaking again of that promise that they are holding on to. And Joseph would inherit that promise now and be a partaker of that promise through Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons, essentially having a double portion of the land of Canaan. That would cause Joseph then to be the one that would really be the um, receiver of the birthright as far as territory was concerned. Well, look at verse eight. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Verse 17. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, uh, uh, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I, I know. <laughs> I love that. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, this is an interesting scenario unfolding here as we read this because, you know, Jake, uh, Joseph, Manasseh is the firstborn. He's the one that's the, again, the, the one that inherits kind of that, that birthright and the greater blessing here. And that would be symbolic by the, the father placing the right hand upon them, that position of strength and passing it on now to the firstborn. And, and Joseph brings them in to line them up perfectly for that, but Jacob does a little switcheroony. He puts his right hand on Ephraim the younger and says, I know what I'm doing. It's all good. Jacob's blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh carried some real prophetic significance and force. 
Because under the inspiration of God, Jacob deliberately gave Ephraim the privileged firstborn blessing and predicted his preeminence. Now this was the fourth consecutive generation, right, of Abraham's descendants in which the normal pattern of the firstborn assuming prominence over the secondborn was reversed because we saw it happen with Isaac over Ishmael. We saw it with Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, and now with Ephraim over Manasseh. We can see this blessing in the process of fulfillment during the judges period when the tribes or the tribe of Ephraim had grown very large and influential. The combined tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh increased from 72,700 in the second year after the Exodus to 85,200 40 years later. And then by contrast, if you take the tribes of Reuben and Simeon, they decreased from 105,000 to uh, 800 to 65,930 during that same period. So the Ephraimites took the lead among the 10 northern tribes during that time they flourished to the extent that the Jews simply used the name Ephraim to kind of speak of all the, the northern, the 10 northern tribes. Ephraim just became synonymous with that, that northern kingdom of Israel. So this pronouncement of this blessing upon Ephraim was very prophetic in nature that, that Jacob was doing. But what we see through these examples is that God does what he does for his glory and purposes. No doubt, God simply working through Jacob. Jacob had no idea this would be happening, but God did. God saw all this before it would come to be. And God does what he does for his glory and purposes. And he often operates in unexpected ways, doesn't he? So many people were surprised. Joseph is looking at the situation going, Dad, what are you doing? This is all wrong. Let me, let me fix this for you. You're blind. Let me help you here. Jacob's, no, I know what I'm doing. Being directed to the Lord. So many people have been surprised throughout, you know, uh, the, the history of Israel as to how God was working and what God was doing. But he operates in unexpected ways. He operates on a different level than just position or appearance or tradition. We can never limit God based on these things that we see in the natural because God moves in unique ways that overrides the natural. And we can confidently simply just trust God even when the things that are before us don't make sense. We don't understand how this is going to work out, how this is going to be good. God works beyond the natural means to accomplish his good and perfect ways. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God does things that go so far beyond the ways of just kind of normalcy because then it's very evident that God's at work God gets all the glory for that so let us keep trusting him even when those things don't make sense to us when we don't always understand how God is going to work these things out for good the whole story of Joseph has been exactly that that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Joseph going up and down, prison to, you know, palace to the prison, forgotten in prison, 
and elevated. Just all things were working out. God was orchestrating and moving all things along according to his perfect plans and purposes. Let us be thankful for that. Let's stand together, worship team. Come, we're going to just close our time with just a song. And maybe there's some things here from the word that you need just to take before the Lord. Maybe there's been struggles in these areas for you of maybe trusting God and wanting yourself to kind of orchestrate the way so that it makes sense to you. Maybe it's been hard to say, God, I need to keep my hands off of that and let you lead and guide and bring about your, your plans in your way. Maybe these are things that we can take to the Lord here tonight and ask him for his help and strength and, and trusting him and being led of him in these things.